Section 17 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Adrian Stevens. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. The Old Benchers of the Inner Temple. I was born and passed the first seven years of my life in the temple, its church, its halls, its gardens, its fountain, its rivers, I had almost said, for in those young years what was this king of rivers to me but a stream that watered our pleasant places? These are of my oldest recollections. I repeat to this day no verses to me more frequently or with kindlier emotion than those of Spencer, where he speaks of this spot there when they came whereas those bricky towers the which on thames broad aged back doth ride where now the studious lawyers have their bowers there willem want the templar knights to bide till they decayed through pride indeed it is the most elegant spot in the metropolis what a transition for a countryman visiting london for the first time the passing from the crowded strand or fleet street by unexpected avenues into its magnificent ample squares its classic green recesses what a cheerful liberal look hath that portion of it which from three sides overlooks the greater garden that goodly pile of building strong albeit of paper height confronting with massy contrast the lighter older more fantastically shrouded one named of harcourt with the cheerful crown office row place of my kindly engendure right opposite the stately stream which washes the garden foot with her yet scarcely trade polluted waters and seems but just weaned from her twickenham naides a man would give something to have been born in such places what a collegiate aspect has that fine elizabethan hall where the fountain plays which i have made to rise and fall how many times to the astonishment of the young urchins my contemporaries who not being able to guess at its recondite machinery were almost tempted to hail the wondrous work as magic what an antique air had the now almost effaced sundials with their moral inscriptions seeming coevals with that time which they measured and to take their revelations of its flight immediately from heaven holding correspondence with the fountain of light how would the dark lines steal imperceptibly on watched by the eye of childhood eager to detect its movement never catched nice as an evanescent cloud or the first arrests of sleep ah yet doth beauty like a dial hand steal from his figure and no pace perceived what a dead thing as a clock with its ponderous embowelments of lead and brass its pert or solemn dullness of communication compared with the simple altar-like structure and silent heart language of the old dial it stood as the garden god of christian gardens why is it almost everywhere vanished if its business use be superseded by more elaborate inventions its moral uses its beauty might have pleaded for its continuance it spoke of moderate labours of pleasures not protracted after sunset of temperance and good hours it was the primitive clock 
the horologe of the first world adam could scarce have missed it in paradise it was the measure appropriate for sweet plants and flowers to spring by for the birds to apportion their silver warblings by for flocks to pasture and be led to fold by the shepherd carved it quaintly in the sun and turning philosopher by the very occupation provided it with mottoes more touching than tombstones it was a pretty device of the gardener recorded by marvell who in the days of artificial gardening made a dial out of herbs and flowers i must quote his verses a little higher up for they are full as all his serious poetry was of a witty delicacy they will not come in awkwardly i hope in a talk of fountains and sundials he is speaking of sweet garden scenes what wondrous life in this i lead ripe apples drop about my head the luscious clusters of the vine upon my mouth do crush their wine the nectarine and curious peach into my hands themselves do reach stumbling on melons as i pass insnared with flowers i fall on grass meanwhile the mind from pleasure less withdraws into its happiness the mind that ocean where each kind does straight its own resemblance find yet it creates transcending these far other worlds and other seas annihilating all that's made to a green thought in a green shade here at the fountain's sliding foot or at some fruit-tree's mossy root casting the body's vest aside my soul into the boughs does glide there like a bird it sits and sings then whets and claps its silver wings and till prepared for longer flight waves in its blooms the various light how well the skilful gardener drew of flowers and herbs this dial new where from above the milder sun does through a fragrant zodiac run and as it works the industrious bee computes its time as well as we how could such sweet and wholesome hours be reckoned but with herbs and flowers footnote from a copy of verses entitled the garden End footnote. the artificial fountains of the metropolis are in like manner fast vanishing most of them are dried up or bricked over yet where one is left as in that little green nook behind the south sea house what a freshness it gives to the dreary pile four little winged marble boys used to play their virgin fancies spouting out ever fresh streams from their innocent wanton lips in the square of lincoln's inn when i was no bigger than they were figured they are gone and the spring choked up the fashion they tell me is gone by and these things are esteemed childish why not then gratify children by letting them stand lawyers i suppose were children once they are awakening images to them at least why must everything smack of man and mannish is the world all grown up is childhood dead or is there not in the bosoms of the wisest and best some of the child's heart left to respond to its earliest enchantments the figures were grotesque 
are the stiff-wigged living figures that still flitter and chatter about that area less gothic in appearance or is the splutter of their hot rhetoric one half so refreshing and innocent as the little cool playful streams those exploded cherubs uttered they have lately gothicized the entrance to the inner temple hall and the library front to assimilate them i suppose to the body of the hall which they do not at all resemble what is become of the winged horse that stood over the former a stately arms and who has removed those frescoes of the virtues which italianized the end of the paper buildings my first hint of allegory they must account to me for these things which i miss so greatly the terrace is indeed left which we used to call the parade but the traces are passed away of the footsteps which made its pavement awful it is become common and profane the old benches had it almost sacred to themselves in the forepart of the day at least they might not be sided or jostled their air and dress asserted the parade you left wide spaces betwixt you when you passed them we walk on even terms with their successors the roguish eye of j l ever ready to be delivered of a jest almost invites a stranger to vie a repartee with it but what insolent familiar durst have mated thomas coventry whose person was a quadrate his step massy and elephantine his face square as the lion's his gait peremptory and path-keeping indivertible from his way as a moving column the scarecrow of his inferiors the bow-beater of equals and superiors who made a solitude of children wherever he came for they fled his insufferable presence as they would have shunned an elisha bear his growl was as thunder in their ears whether he spake to them in mirth or in rebuke his invitatory notes being indeed of all the most repulsive and horrid clouds of snuff aggravating the natural terrors of his speech broke from each majestic nostril darkening the air he took it not by pinches but a palmful at once diving for it under the mighty flaps of his old-fashioned waistcoat pocket his waistcoat red and angry his coat dark rapé tinctured by dye original and by adjuncts with buttons of obsolete gold and so he paced the terrace by his side a milder form was sometimes to be seen the pensive gentility of samuel salt they were coevals and had nothing but that and their benchership in common in politics salt was a whig and coventry a staunch tory many a sarcastic growl did the latter cast out for coventry had a rough spinous humour at the political confederates of his associate which rebounded from the gentle bosom of the latter like cannonballs from wool you could not ruffle samuel salt s had a reputation of being a very clever man and of excellent discernment in the chamber practice of the law i suspect his knowledge did not amount to much 
when a case of difficult disposition of money testamentary or otherwise came before him he ordinarily handed it over with a few instructions to his man lovell who was a quick little fellow and would dispatch it out of hand by the light of natural understanding of which he had an uncommon share it was incredible what repute for talents s enjoyed by the mere trick of gravity he was a shy man a child might pose him in a minute indolent and procrastinating to the last degree yet men would give him credit for vast application in spite of himself he was not to be trusted with himself with impunity he never dressed for a dinner-party but he forgot his sword they wore swords then or some other necessary part of his equipage lovell had his eye upon him on all these occasions and ordinarily gave him his cue if there was anything which he could speak unseasonably he was sure to do it he was to dine at a relative's of the unfortunate miss blandy on the day of her execution and l who had a wary foresight of his probable hallucinations before he set out schooled him with great anxiety not in any possible manner to allude to her story that day s promised faithfully to observe the injunction he had not been seated in the parlour where the company was expecting the dinner summons four minutes when a pause in the conversation ensuing he got up looked out of the window and pulled down his ruffles an ordinary motion with him observed it was a gloomy day and added miss blandy must be hanged by this time i suppose instances of this sort were perpetual yet s was thought by some of the greatest men of his time a fit person to be consulted not alone in matters pertaining to the law but in the ordinary niceties and embarrassments of conduct from force of manner entirely he never laughed he had the same good fortune among the female world was a known toast with the ladies and one or two are said to have died for love of him i suppose because he never trifled or talked gallantry with them or paid them indeed hardly common attentions he had a fine face and person but wanted methought the spirit that should have shown them off with advantage to the women his eye lacked lustre not so thought susan p who at the advanced age of sixty was seen in the cold evening time unaccompanied wetting the pavement of b d row with tears that fell in drops that might be heard because her friend had died that day he whom she had pursued with a hopeless passion for the last forty years a passion which years could not extinguish or abate nor the long resolved yet gently enforced puttings off of unrelenting bachelorhood dissuade from its cherished purpose mild susan p thou hast now thy friend in heaven thomas coventry was a cadet of the noble family of that name he passed his youth in contracted circumstances which gave him early those parsimonious habits which in after-life never forsook him so that with one windfall or another about the time i knew him he was master of four or five hundred thousand pounds nor did he look or walk worth a meodor less he lived in a gloomy house opposite the pump in sergeant's inn fleet street j the council is doing self-imposed penance in it 
for what reason i divine not at this day c had an agreeable seat at north cray where he seldom spent above a day or two at a time in the summer but preferred during the hot months standing at his window in this damp close well-like mansion to watch as he said the maids drawing water all day long i suppose he had his within-door reasons for the preference hic curus et arma fuere he might think his treasures more safe his house had the aspect of a strong-box c was a close hunks a hoarder rather than a miser or if a miser none of the mad elwes breed who have brought discredit upon a character which cannot exist without certain admirable points of steadiness and unity of purpose one may hate a true miser but cannot i suspect so easily despise him by taking care of the pence he is often enabled to part with the pounds upon a scale that leaves us careless generous fellows halting at an immeasurable distance behind c gave away thirty thousand pounds at once in his lifetime to a blind charity his housekeeping was severely looked after but he kept the table of a gentleman he would know who came in and who went out of his house but his kitchen chimney was never suffered to freeze salt was his opposite in this as in all never knew what he was worth in the world and having but a competency for his rank which his indolent habits were little calculated to improve might have suffered severely if he had not had honest people about him lovell took care of everything he was at once his clerk his good servant his dresser his friend his flapper his guide stopwatch auditor treasurer he did nothing without consulting lovell or failed in anything without expecting and fearing his admonishing he put himself almost too much in his hands had they not been the purest in the world he resigned his title almost to respect as a master if l could ever have forgotten for a moment that he was a servant i know this lovell he was a man of an incorrigible and losing honesty a good fellow withal and would strike in the cause of the oppressed he never considered inequalities or calculated the number of his opponents he once wrestled a sword out of the hand of a man of quality that had drawn upon him and pommelled him severely with the hilt of it the swordsman had offered insult to a female an occasion upon which no odds against him could have prevented the interference of lovell he would stand next day bareheaded to the same person modestly to excuse his interference for l never forgot rank where something better was not concerned l was the liveliest little fellow breathing had a face as gay as garrick's whom he was said greatly to resemble i have a portrait of him which confirms it possessed a fine turn for humorous poetry next to swift and prior moulded heads in clay or plaster of paris to admiration by the dint of natural genius merely turned cribbage boards and such small cabinet toys to perfection took a hand at quadrille or bowls with equal facility made punch better than any man of his degree in england had the merriest quips and conceits and was altogether as brimful of rogueries and inventions as you could desire he was a brother of the angle moreover and was just a free hearty honest companion as mr isaac walton would have chosen to go a-fishing with i saw him in his old age 
and the decay of his faculties palsy smitten in the last sad stage of human weakness a remnant most forlorn of what he was yet even then his eye would light up at the mention of his favourite garrick he was greatest he would say in bays was upon the stage nearly throughout the whole performance and as busy as a bee at intervals too he would speak of his former life and how he came up a little boy from lincoln to go to service and how his mother cried at parting with him and how he returned after some few years absence in his smart new livery to see her and she blessed herself at the change and could hardly be brought to believe that it was her own bairn and then the excitement subsiding he would weep till i have wished that sad second childhood might have a mother still to lay its head upon her lap but the common mother of us all in no long time after received him gently into hers with coventry and with salt in their walks upon the terrace most commonly peter pearson would join to make up a third they did not walk linked arm in arm in those days as now our stout triumvirs sweep the streets but generally with both hands folded behind them for state or with one at least behind the other carrying a cane p was a benevolent but not a prepossessing man he had in that face which you would not term unhappiness it rather implied an incapacity of being happy his cheeks were colourless even to whiteness his look was uninviting resembling but without his sourness that of our great philanthropist i know that he did good acts but i could never make out what he was contemporary with these but subordinate was danes barrington another oddity who walked burly and square in imitation i think of coventry howbeit he attained not to the dignity of his prototype nevertheless he did pretty well upon the strength of being a tolerable antiquarian and having a brother a bishop when the account of his year's treasureship came to be audited the following singular charge was unanimously disallowed by the bench Quote, item disbursed mr allen the gardener twenty shillings for stuff to poison the sparrows by my orders next to him was old barton a jolly negation who took upon him the ordering of the bills of fare for the parliament chamber where the benches dine answering to the combination rooms at college much to the easement of his less epicurean brethren i know nothing more of him then read and twopenny read good-humoured and personable twopenny good-humoured but thin and felicitous in jests upon his own figure if tea was thin worry was attenuated and fleeting many must remember him for he was rather of later date and his singular gait which was performed by three steps and a jump regularly succeeding the steps were little efforts like that of a child beginning to walk the jump comparatively vigorous as a foot to an inch where he learned this figure or what occasioned it i could never discover it was neither graceful in itself nor seemed to answer the purpose any better than common walking the extreme tenuity of his frame i suspect set him upon it 
it was a trial of poising twopenny would often rally upon his leanness and hail him as brother lusty but w had no relish of a joke his features were spiteful i have heard that he would pinch his cat's ears extremely when anything had offended him jackson the omniscient jackson he was called was of this period he had the reputation of possessing more multifarious knowledge than any man of his time he was the friar bacon of the less literate portion of the temple i remember a pleasant passage of the cook applying to him with more formality of apology for instructions how to write down edge bone of beef in his bill of commons he was supposed to know if any man in the world did he decided the orthography to be as i have given it fortifying his authority with such anatomical reasons as dismissed the manciple for the short time learned and happy some do spell it yet perversely h-bone from a fanciful resemblance to its shape and that of the aspirate so denominated i had almost forgotten mingay with the iron hand but he was somewhat later he had lost his right hand by some accident and supplied it with a grappling hook which he wielded with a tolerable adroitness i detected the substitute before i was old enough to reason whether it were artificial or not i remember the astonishment it raised in me he was a blustering loud-talking person and i reconciled the phenomenon to my ideas as an emblem of power somewhat like the horns in his forehead of michelangelo's moses baron masseries who walks or did till very lately in the costume of the reign of george the second closes my imperfect recollections of the old benchers of the inner temple fantastic forms whither are ye fled or if the like of you exist why exist they no more for me ye inexplicable half-understood appearances why comes in reason to tear away the preternatural mist bright or gloomy that enshrouded you why make ye so sorry a figure in my relation who made up to me to my childish eyes the mythology of the temple in those days i saw gods as old men covered with a mantle walking upon the earth let the dreams of classic idolatry perish extinct be the fairies and fairy trumpery of legendary fabling in the heart of childhood there will for ever spring up a well of innocent or wholesome superstition the seeds of exaggeration will be busy there and vital from every day forms educing the unknown and the uncommon in that little goshen there will be light when the grown world flounders about in the darkness of sense and materiality while childhood and while dreams reducing childhood shall be left imagination shall not have spread her holy wings totally to fly the earth p s i have done injustice to the soft shade of samuel salt see what it is to trust to imperfect memory and the erring notices of childhood yet i protest i always thought that he had been a bachelor this gentleman r n informs me married young 
and losing his lady in childbed within the first year of their union fell into a deep melancholy from the effects of which probably he never thoroughly recovered in what a new light does this place his rejection oh call it by a gentler name of mild susan p unravelling into beauty certain peculiarities of this very shy and retiring character henceforth let no one receive the narratives of elia for true records they are in truth but shadows of fact verisimilitudes not verities or sitting upon the remote edges and outskirts of history he is no such honest chronicler as r n and would have done better perhaps to have consulted that gentleman before he sent these incondite reminiscences to press but the worthy sub-treasurer who respects his old and new masters would have been puzzled at the indecorous liberties of elia the good man wots not peradventure of the license which magazines have arrived at in this plain-speaking age or hardly dreams of their existence beyond the gentleman's his furthest monthly excursions in this nature having been long confined to the holy ground of honest urban's obituary may it be long before his own name shall help to swell those columns of unenvied flattery meantime o ye new benchers of the inner temple cherish him kindly for he is himself the kindliest of human creatures should infirmities overtake him he is yet in green and vigorous senility make allowances for them remembering that ye yourselves are old so may the winged horse your ancient badge and cognizance still flourish so may future hookers and seldens illustrate your church and chambers so may the sparrows in default of more melodious querestors unpoisoned hop about your walks so may the fresh-coloured and cleanly nursery-maid who by leave airs her playful charge in your stately gardens drop her prettiest blushing curtsy as ye pass reductive of juvenescent emotion so may the yonkers of this generation eye you pacing your stately terrace with the same superstitious veneration with which the child elia gazed upon the old worthies that solemnized the parade before ye end of section seventeen